This is Josh with the invitation. You're listening to My Church, Maple Avenue Ministries in Holland, Michigan. This is a service last summer, about three or four months into quarantine. I turn to this worship for nourishment and strength as we continue part two of our summer series, White People Talking to White People About Racism, a reading of Reparations, A Christian Call to Repentance and Repair by Duke Kwan and Gregory Thompson. Yeah, just being able to return to my worshiping community for nourishment, for inspiration, and for support. I encourage those of you who are committed to this long journey to likewise find your own nourishment. This is not an easy conversation. My guest for this episode, Jesse, Curtis speaks candidly about his own joy and goodness about engaging the questions of racism. The evils, the evils of racism in America. I will say, though, that it has been remarkable to experience God through these things. I, I I just felt felt so connected to a higher power, to 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 the divine. Mm. And um in a way that could be angry at injustice 
without separating myself from it. As a spiritual director, I would not be offering this resource for you and inviting you into it if I didn't believe that there was goodness available for us, that we would not find God more specifically and sincerely and transformatively in and through this conversation. Once again, if you would like to skip directly to my conversation with Jesse Curtis, I will put that beginning time in the show notes. So yes, how do we approach this enormous and difficult topic that we're naming here in this book as white supremacy? And we approach this in the same way that we approach anything difficult with courage patience, grace, humility, and yet also with a kind of rigorous persistence that is compelled by love. And this is why I'm so, so, so grateful to have this opening discussion with Jesse Curtis specifically, because he helps me make this book more accessible to you. And what I mean by that is that while Jesse and I attempt to engage the actual book, reading some sections of it, the, the best gift that Jesse offers us as a conversation partner here is his humble willingness to discuss how once he began to care about anti-racism, he had swung too far into an unhelpful posture. Some of you may remember last summer I offered a guided journey through Father Martin Laird's A Sunlit Absence. That is the second book in his three-volume series on contemplative prayer. One of the many gifts that Father Laird offers us in his writings is this deep truth of the contemplative God-saturated life. He says that the opposite of the contemplative life is not the active life. The opposite of the contemplative life is the reactive life. So, Jesse Curtis has done, and today he's doing the work of anti-racism in his research and writing, teaching. Yet, as he explains in this episode, early on his response to racism was largely an unhelpful reactivity. And so what he's done is set me up to present this summer series as an intentional guided journey that will give you an opportunity to discern your own healthy posture toward the reading of our text, Reparations, a Christian call for repentance and repair, and also a healthy posture 
as you continue to discern your appropriate and sacrificial Christ-like response to racism. So on one hand, I'm hoping to draw in listeners and readers who are just beginning to address the questions of white supremacy. And at the risk of oversimplifying, we can say that I'm trying to draw in more of my conservative friends and family. Our text on reparations, after all, was written by two PCA pastors. As Jesse and I discuss here, this is a great advantage of this text, its pastoral tone and approach. How can the invitation then serve as a safe place to open a discussion that allows some Christ followers to go where they have never gone before in a conversation about racial injustice? And then on the other hand, I'm attempting to draw on listeners who may have been involved in the conversation on racial injustice and white supremacy for a long, long time. And I'm hoping to create for these folks perhaps a new and refreshing approach to these things, first in and through prayer, through a deep God conversation. The authors of our text, Reparations, Quan and Thompson, introduce the scope of their book in a way that identifies the challenges for both conservatives and progressives. They write in their introduction, The sad, though understandable truth, is that conversations over social change, especially those surrounding racial redress, are fraught with self-righteousness and venomous recrimination. Rarely are these conversations characterized by the presumption that perhaps we are wrong, that we are the problem, and that our social goals require our personal repentance. Indeed, there is a discernible vanity in both religious conservative patriots and secular liberal elites that presumes that social change can somehow bypass personal repentance, that the world can change while we remain the same. This false presumption obstructs the work of reparations because it inevitably focuses our attention on defending our rightness rather than on repairing the wrong before us. This tendency is an unwillingness of many Americans and of our collective government to stand before our African-American citizens and before the world and say, we did this, it was wrong, and we want to repair what has been done. But if we are to heal the wounds of white supremacy, this is precisely what we must do. Though reparations will not be accomplished simply by changing who we are, 
they cannot be accomplished without it. So the obstacle here, the resistance, is my own need to be right. And for me to be right is to spend my time and energy making sure that someone else is wrong. This is at the core of what we understand to be the gross ego of the history of whiteness. We're not trying to say there's anything wrong with white skin. What we'll explore and unpack here in this book is this idea of the history of the white power to be right. The central idea of my correctness, my rightness, my power is precipitated. It pivots off of the ability to prove other people wrong. So I can approach this conversation on reparations, not because I'm an expert on the topic, but because as a spiritual director, this is a core move, a core practice for us as Christians to empty ourselves and to practice confession and to be willing to admit when we're wrong and to ask the Holy Spirit for help to make things right. So I come to this conversation as a spiritual director and a retreat facilitator. I think of what is ahead of us as an extended retreat. And so I invite you to approach this journey not as a Catholic or a Protestant, not as a conservative or a liberal, not as an academic or a professional, as a pastor or an activist. I hope you can come on this retreat in a way that allows you to retreat and to step away from all that identifies us and keeps us busy and preoccupied that you and I would be able to retreat from the things that prop up our egos and help us feel productive and even the things that keep us safe. I do want to offer a call to worship here before we dive into my conversation with Jesse. I want to offer this retreat a moment of prayer so that you can more intentionally present yourself as a living sacrifice. 
to empty of your powers and to surrender to the love, mercy, and the healing work of the Holy Spirit. So I invite you to open yourself to the presence of God as you're able, turning your thoughts to the truth of the being of God, opening your heart, your emotions to the being of God, allowing God to also be in your body, being fully present. And we pray a prayer from Howard Thurman that I will share in the show notes for this episode. Lord, open unto me. Open unto me light from my darkness. Open unto me courage for my fear. Open unto me hope for my despair. Open unto me peace for my turmoil. Open unto me joy for my sorrow. Open unto me strength for my weakness. Open unto me wisdom for my confusion. Open unto me forgiveness for my sins. Open unto me tenderness for my toughness. Open unto me love for my hates. Open unto me thyself for myself. Lord, open unto me. And as you listen to my conversation here with Jesse, I pray you can keep this question in mind. This is our focus question that I am proposing for your discernment throughout the entire reading of this book and as we engage this vocabulary of reparations. How can this book and this vocabulary of reparations allow me to cultivate the like-minded consciousness of Jesus who emptied and humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. Jesse N. Curtis is an assistant professor of history at Valparaiso University. His work has appeared in the Journal of American Studies, History and Memory, and Religion and American Culture. His forthcoming book, The Myth of Colorblind Christians, Evangelicals, and White Supremacy in the Civil Rights Era, will be out this coming fall in 2021. Hello, Jesse and Curtis. It is awesome to have you on the Invitation Podcast. 
Thank you so much, Josh. Appreciate you having me. So as I was looking at how to approach this enormous book, Reparations, for the summer discussion, um, the series we're calling White People Speaking to White People About Racism, I was trying to find some people that could well represent this conversation, help us go deeper in our reading, and I contacted Kristen Dumay, author of Jesus and John Wayne, and uh, she gave me a list of names, and Jesse uh, is one of those who responded, so I am incredibly grateful for your willingness and interest in joining us in this conversation. So, uh, Jesse, uh, tell us a little bit about your um, your formation, how you got into this conversation on racism. Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, well, it's a long story. Uh, I grew up in a, a white Christian uh, environment, um, white evangelical, uh, rural, uh, conservative, and um, had very little uh, concept of what race might even be, um, or that it would matter at all. Um, and I thought that I was just, uh, I was just a Christian, you know? And, um, so I, uh, that changed when, uh, I moved to Chicago for college. Um, and actually I was, I was going to Moody Bible Institute, um, and so if you know anything about that institution, it, it wasn't necessarily the institution itself that was changing my perspective. It was the city, um, as well as some of the people I met, um, most especially the, the woman who became my wife. Um, and she was talking about these crazy things that I didn't understand. <laughs> she was talking about justice and talking about how she was going to move to the West Side and live there and worship there and you know, be a, be a minority in the neighborhood. And I didn't understand that. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I, I gradually, um, really had my world kind of, kind of shaken as I saw, um, poverty and prosperity, uh, you know, blocks from each other and the, um, obvious racialization of that. Um, it was shocking to me. And I, I kept thinking, this is America too. This is America too. And I never knew it. And I, um, it took a long time um, to try to figure out what that meant uh, for me, um, for my faith. It was like a second conversion experience. Um, and yeah, so um, it, became, um, something deeply personal to me. Um, and I became, I suppose, kind of a, a zealous self-righteous white person who was angry at other white people for thinking the same things I had thought a year before, <laughs> you know, I saw the light six months ago. Why haven't you seen it yet? You know, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, it's so it's a it's a continual journey um, and it never stops. Um, but grateful to be on the journey, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, first acknowledging 
the gift of wives. My wife has been instrumental in uh, calling my attention for years in ways I could not understand how I was closed and even uh, brittle, even uh, reactionary at deep levels. So part of what I want to get into with this book discussion is how this question of racism is is really a spiritual journey that um, why would the invitation, this uh, ministry largely of spiritual direction and prayer, engage this justice arena? Well, on, only way to see ourselves is with the help of the Holy Spirit. So can you speak to your God knowledge in this journey and how, you know, we're working through these things with your wife speaking into this and what this meant to your understanding of your faith? Yeah. Yeah. Um, lots of re lots of deconstruction to use a trendy word. Um, but I, I would say that, um, you know, even a starting point alongside being in the city, being in Chicago, moving to the West side, um, feeling out of place, feeling self-conscious, all of those things alongside it was simply reading scripture and seeing things I had never seen before. Um, you know, we're all so, so shaped by our, our context. And mm -hmm. I, um, I was reading about, you know, a God of justice who cares for the poor mm -hmm. and acts, especially on their behalf. Mm -hmm. And it would, that was just right there on, in the Bible, plain as day. Yeah. And, and even though I had read the Bible cover to cover because I was a good studious little Christian, yeah. I, I had never seen that. I had never even considered that. Yeah. Um, and so th there was that piece. And then, um, you know, I, I think I began to feel that in some way, this kind of social justice, anti-racism, um, at times became the only thing I had left of my faith. Uh, yeah. Um, and that didn't feel good either. Sure. <laughs> um, and I will say though, that um, it has been remarkable to um, experience God mm. through these things. Um, I remember when the Trayvon Martin verdict, when the, um, you know, Sim George Zimmerman was, uh, yeah. got off. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I went up to my room by myself and I read the 59th chapter of Isaiah and I, did not feel self-righteous in that moment. I felt angry in a way that I had not felt before, perhaps um, like a kind of um, sorrowful anger um, that uh, I, I, I just felt, felt so connected to a higher power to, to, to the divine. Mm. And um in a way that could be angry at injustice 
without separating myself from it Mm -hmm. or thinking that I was above it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that, that was, that was a special, um, experience. And then even in, um, you know, in this last year of, of protest and, um, in, in 2020, it had been, you know, life, life goes on and life gets busy. And it had been some years since I had been to a protest, you know, like out on the streets, that kind of thing. And, um, so there were protests happening here in Philadelphia after, uh, George Floyd's murder. And I finally, um, managed to get away, go, go to one. And I, um, but like, I couldn't find the protests, like the, mm. the protesters were moving and I was, I got downtown and was trying to like catch up with them walking around by myself for a long time, feeling frustrated. And I finally caught up with them and fell into the crowd and started walking along with them and began to just share in the chants. And some of them I had not said in years. And it was, uh, you know, are we ever closer to God than when we are raising our voice on behalf of others? Wow. It was such a spiritual experience. Um, and so, and I, and I hold on to those um, because, you know, very often I don't feel God. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> And, but I hold on to those moments and knowing that, that that was real um, and it is real. Yeah. So thank you. That's, that's a new thought for me as someone who's led a lot of corporate worship and struggled to figure out, am I singing the right song? Is this, you know, underneath that has been the sense, well, we're gathering people together to be in God and I thought about that in the sense of God's presence for a worship service, but you're now helping us think about being together for the sake of standing against injustice as a as a spiritual communal action. And um, that's that's a that's a powerful thought here as we begin this book. Why would we bother to look at the myth of colorblindness? Or at the uh, this, this in, in, intense steep climb of the vocab of reparations. Well, we're coming together here in another way as a community. So, thank you. Um, with that, um, the hope here is to discuss some of the introduction. Not that we can give a comprehensive overview, but just somehow just whet the appetite. Um, sometimes I read books and I finish a chapter. I'm like, what did I just read? <laughs> it went in one ear and out the other. And, and so the gift when we um, read a book deeply and what we're trying to model here with the invitation is a spirituality of study that God can be with us in, in deep, soulish, and even effective ways while we use our, our minds. And so the idea is slowing the tape here um, by having conversations with people like you, Jesse, to just celebrate 
and to, to deepen that this has been written down, that someone has taken time to craft these ideas. And this is not something I can just read once uh, that I need to rehearse and to sit with, especially the, the more intense, the more um, gravity for any topic, the more I need to have discernment with the help of the one who is given to us to teach us the ways of Christ with the help of the Spirit. So with that said, uh, Jesse and I were thinking just the beginning story from Reparations. One of the great things about this book is that there's a lot of narrative that helps us take all these big ideas and put them into characters and to real happenings. So, Jesse, would you just give us a summary? Let's talk a little bit about this. Why would um, Greg Thompson and Duke Kwan begin with this story? So, yeah, go ahead and introduce that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, they open the book, and I hope anyone listening will will, will go buy the book, but because uh, it, it, it is very good. Um, but they they open the book with this fascinating letter uh, from Jordan Anderson in 1865. So slavery has just ended. Jordan Anderson had been enslaved, gained his freedom during the war. And meanwhile, his former enslaver after the war ends, you know, the the plantation has been disrupted, things are falling apart. And his former enslaver writes to Jordan Anderson saying, come back and work for me. Mm -hmm. Well, Jordan Anderson and his family are in Ohio by this time, comfortably situated. And so Jordan Anderson writes back to his former enslaver, and it's one of the most amazing documents you'll ever read. Um, and part of what it is, is, uh, is reparations. <laughs> it's Jordan Anderson says, well, uh, I, I want to hear about this, this chance you are, you are offering me. And, uh, and I'll be assured of your good intentions mm-hmm. if you simply um, give us our, our back wages yeah. for for the 32 years yeah. I was I was working for you. And so it comes to many thousands of dollars. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it it's a um, I've used this letter uh, with my students and oh. and I asked them, um, you know, I'll ask them, what does freedom mean mm-hmm. to Jordan Anderson? And you you read this letter and part of it is, you know, a fair return for one's labor, you know, for an honest day's work. Uh, Part of it is education for his children, uh, religious instruction. He says he has no greater ambition than for them to form virtuous habits and and to be educated. It's, It's safety and dignity for his wife and children. Mm-hmm. And so I look at this and freedom to Jordan Anderson means all of these uh, God-given aspirations for wholeness and, and dignity as, as, as creatures of God. And then I turn it around and I say, what do you think freedom meant to Jordan Anderson's enslaver? And, and I think it meant the ability to deploy yeah. the labor of others for one's own benefit, to control others for one's own profit. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I really, you know, I think that kind of sets up 
mm-hmm. a the the sort of pathology yeah. <laughs> at at the heart of this that that runs right down to our present moment. Um, this sort of diseased sense of of what what freedom is. Yeah. Um, That's fantastic. So this already kicks off this question when we talk about reparations. We're not just talking about money. And um, I, I keep turning back and, and pointing people towards Ta-Nehisi Coates' uh, essay from 2014 on the case for, for reparations. And he says that very frankly, you know, this is not just about money. This is about a spiritual revolution. This is coming from someone who's not a person of faith. When, so when he says a spiritual revolution, that gets to that question of freedom. If if Tanasi Coates has a sense of of spirituality, it would, uh, my sense, be what you're saying. You know that you know education, um, the freedom to, to access good health, good work, good family stability. And I also can't help but think that part of the genius of beginning this book on reparations with this is that this letter postures, a mo- it models for us a kind of winsome, um, it seems to be able to name the, the injustices, but to do this, he, the, the, uh, the, the the letter keeps reminiscing the people that he loves. <laughs> Please say hello to this person and this person. We we miss them. We miss them. But at one point, he was chasing me down the road, shooting at me. <laughs> so you're thrust into the guts of the complexity of being owned by another family, but yet also still loving them. And then to come back, the tone here is not one of... Um, acidic vengeance. Um, and so that, I think, sets the tone for how um, Thompson and Kwan, they are naming things very frankly, without apology, but also doing it as pastors with a kind of care. And um, you can tell that they have thought through this together and talked with lots of people. So it doesn't end up being reactionary. Yeah, yeah. It's funny you met, that's I. That's exactly the word I had in my. I, I said to myself, "This book is remarkably pastoral," mm-hmm. yeah. which is not what you would associate with a book about reparations. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. So you you need not be too scared of this. You're in the hands of of pastors. <laughs> yeah, and I have the gift of. Knowing Greg Thompson, I haven't been around him actively for decades, but knowing him in college and seeing him here and there at different conferences, and he does have that composure of uh, a very generous, very warm person, um, but also very, very clear, um, very, very much to the point. And I watched, I will put a link somewhere to... uh, a video podcast of, of them talking about this book. And if someone wants to just watch a bit of that, you can, it is really helpful to approach this book, which is very enormous. And I've already had people that have said they want to read the book, but 
honestly, there's some trepidation. Um, it's really helpful to know in whose hands you have committed <laughs> yourself to this conversation. So, have you? Can you speak to that? Have you been around toxic uh, voices where you felt that man, this there's so much truth about what they're saying about injustice, but the way they're getting at this is just not helpful. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I I often feel that uh, I I want to say to people, get off Twitter. Ah, there you I, go. I, like I I ah. I now I am not here to say that in real life you won't you won't encounter those voices, right? Yeah. But I will say that over and over again, far more often. I've encountered verses of voices of mercy, um, voices of patience, mm-hmm. um, people who have been very gracious with me as I have worked through my racism, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, online things can, can feel so toxic and zero sum. Mm-hmm. And, if those are the only spaces that we know, yeah. um, it's time to find some new spaces because yeah. they're they're out there. They they really are. And 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 for people who care about these things and are in it for the long haul, yeah, they're not in it to browbeat you. <laughs> you know, they want to make real change. Yeah. Um, so this is really really important. It's not just what we think as Christians, it's how we think, how we hold our ideas. As a spiritual director, the way that I've been trained, it's not that my discernment is wrong. The question is, what do I do with my discernment? How do I respond to this discernment? And does my response to this discernment, is it, incongru- is it incongruous with the kind of fruit that we're hoping for, that we would pray for in people. And so, yeah, Twitter, man, I, I'm not really on there much, but it astounds me. And Twitter's kind of like the, the constellation, the distillation of uh, what you'd find in other social media, but it's just like that's what people do. They just get on there to be a diatribe. And I need that sometimes. I just don't want that all day long. <laughs> So let's get further into the book. Um, as you uh, already sent me some great notes on uh, your reading and wanting to find some overlap with your research, just beginning with the vocabulary word of reparations. And you say um, we approach reparations. Um, you're, you're echoing what, what the introduction here is about from Duke, and, um, Duke Kwan and Greg Thompson saying that reparations, we, we approach this because it's the right thing to do, not because it's a useful tool. And we often want to be pragmatic about this. But here we're trying to say, as people of faith, we're looking for the truth, for, for righteous actions. Can you speak some more about that? Yeah. Yeah, I, it really stood out to me the way they you know, almost, almost seem to say like, yeah, the, you know, the witness of the church, that's nice, but 
that's not the issue here. Is this right? Is it just? Is it the right thing to do? Well, then we ought to do it. <laughs> and and sort of let the chips fall where they may. And I found that really striking because in my own, you know, like you say, in my own research in this book, um, The Myth of Colorblind Christians, I find that there's this pervasive discourse, even among sort of more progressive white uh, Christian voices saying, you know, like back in the civil rights era, you know, we must act. We need to do something about this civil rights crisis mm -hmm. because the eyes of the next generation are on us uh -huh. or because, you know, the credibility of the church is at stake. Mm -hmm. And it's not that those things aren't true necessarily, mm -hmm. but it's, it's kind of like you were saying, what, what do, um, how do I, uh, or what did you say? How do you think, not just what you think, but how you, how uh, you think it. Yeah. And so it's not necessarily false that the credibility of the church may in some sense be at stake, but when we're using that to motivate action, we're not getting out of the pragmatic mode. Yeah. We're not getting out of a self-absorbed mode. Yeah. We're acting for ourselves <laughs> rather than acting for others. Yeah. Um, and so I, it seems deeply problematic. And Quan and, and Thompson, mm -hmm. they're not having it. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're saying this is about acting on behalf of others because it is the right thing to do. Um, and I just found that really refreshing mm -hmm. and, and frankly, unusual. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah. That the church is other focused. It is not self, it should not be self-preserving. The quote that you pulled out here um, from Quanta Thompson, we sense in this concern, a lurking tendency towards ecclesial self-interest a subtle shift of focus away from a concern for historical injustice and toward a concern for theological self-preservations. We wish to resist this tendency at all costs. There's that wonderful tone. It gives the impression that the real issue before us, the real battle to be fought, is the battle to preserve the integrity of the church and its theological formulations. But this issue, while important, is not ours in this book. Our concern is not to defend the Christian church from its alleged ideological victimization, but to defend our neighbors from their actual victimization by repairing the harm done by white supremacy in our communities. Indeed, we believe that this work, rather than being a threat to our theology, is, <laughs> to the contrary, its proper fruit. <sighs> yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it takes a real um, mixture of a, of a scholarly and a pastoral um, uh, dignity, uh, maturity, to be able to hold those things in tension and to say it that generously yet decisively. So, so that reaction, um, just to bring it first and foremost, you know, like uh, I'll tell, tell a, an awkward story on myself. Um, 
just about me telling a story. When I was in middle school, my parents took me to Cancun for a vacation, and we were touring some ancient sites there. And long story short, I have a story where I would do an impersonation of a Mexican man who was our tour guide. And uh, I have a thing with doing imitations, and I never thought about it being racially charged. I never thought about it being about my, how funny I am at the expense of others. And my wife, just over the years, would hear me in different companies. Just somehow that story would come out. It was one of those tapes I'd play. And she would challenge me on that. And I could not see that. I was, I was worried about self-preservation. Oh, it's my story. Why do I have to quiet myself and silence myself? And she'd say, well, that's easier for you, white man of privilege. And that would then shame me, and then I'd, I'd rear back. And so I, I could see the church doing the same thing. Any kind of threat to the way we've done church, this is our truth. This is our historical doctrine. Anything to come in, whether it's Black Lives Matter or before that, um, over the, the you know the, the centuries prior, we're going to hunker down. We're going to batten the hatches and self-preserve. And your writing actually describes the move towards that vocabulary of color blindness as being one of those moves. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. It is an act of of self-preservation. And you know what you were just saying reminds me of the. Well, you know, you you have a a, a Wheaton connection, right? Yeah. Uh, and and Thompson uh, was at Wheaton, but um, a Wheaton administrator um, some decades ago who said we've allowed ourselves to think that white culture is the only Christian culture, mm-hmm. and um, to to get to the place where you can offer that kind of sort of self critique. Mm-hmm. of oneself and one's own community mm-hmm. is is difficult and it's much more comfortable to retreat into this kind of colorblindness yeah. of denying that we have a culture and that we're we're just Christians. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're just the normal Christians, don't you know? And yeah. and we we own the truth. And um, so people who don't conform to our assumptions are doing Christianity wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, you know, um, as long as we're thinking in that mold, uh, I don't know how we even begin to grapple with something as challenging as reparations. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, unpack for us a little bit about your work and how did the church retreat to the vocab of colorblindness as a, as a practice of self-preservation rather than thinking about the other? Yeah. Well, I think that to me, the key context is the way the civil rights movement completely disrupted normal modes of, of operation for all kinds of American institutions and the church as well. Um, and segregation very quickly went from being just kind of, for many white Americans, this wholesome sort of normal thing 
to being something that was toxic, you know, it had a toxic brand. Um, and that was true in the church as well as in broader American society in the sixties and seventies. And, and at that same time, black Christians are saying to white Christians, you must include us. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, and particularly in my research, I'm especially interested in self-identified black evangelicals mm. who are going to evangelical institutions like Wheaton mm -hmm. um, or uh, other sort of flagship white evangelical spaces and saying, mm. hey, you know, Christ died for us all. Mm. You know, Paul says in Christ, there's no Jew nor Greek. Mm -hmm. You must include us. Mm -hmm. Right. And to me, the fascinating thing is that that kind of rhetoric, um, you know, is it racist or anti-racist? Well, mm. it depends. Mm. Wow. <laughs> you know, you, you see figures like Howard Jones, for example, the first um, black evangelist on Billy Graham's team. Mm using precisely that kind of rhetoric and those sorts of scriptures about mm -hmm. unity in Christ and to press for change, mm -hmm. to make these institutions more inclusive, um, more open. And then very quickly, white Christians turn around and say, if we're united in Christ, if, if in Christ our, our identities as Christians are larger and more important than any racial identity, then why are we talking about race, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, and it, so it quickly becomes a move to shut down conversation, to tell people to be quiet. Mm -hmm. um, and even to the extent of this becomes linked to Christian maturity, mm -hmm. right? If you were a mature Christian, you wouldn't, be making such a big deal about yeah. race. Right. You would know that right. in Christ, race doesn't matter. <laughs> right. And so it, what's actually a self-protective move to protect the status quo, yeah. in term, both in terms of institutions and in terms of identity, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a white Christian, but I don't want to think about the whiteness part. Yeah. Um, what's actually a self-protective move is is actually sacralizing yeah making sacred mm -hmm. what's actually my racial identity and and, and racial blind spot mm -hmm. um and to me i mean that's my that's my research but it's my research because it's my autobiography first <laughs> yeah you know definitely thank you like that that's my that's my story thank and you for so that posture yeah, and for those that haven't worked through this, um, the the trouble with the vocabulary of colorblindness is that we're then just glossing over. We want to say ultimately that race is a construct of Western culture and, and Western domination um, that becomes white supremacy, and that's that's really what this book gets at and is very clear about, um, we do want to say we're all made equal and we don't, we wish we weren't making race an issue, but to suddenly just 
like kind of use this colorblind wand to like sweep that under the rug is to erase on one hand hundreds of years of oppression and to you know just present everything's okay and on the other hand it's also offensive in the sense that we do want to celebrate the fact that these people come from a culture that's different than ours we we need to have and it's not a monolithic culture either <laughs> So we're talking about all kinds of different ways of being people of color. So, yeah, I ran into that with a woman who's basically like an aunt to me on Facebook at one point. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, this was years ago and just said something about... That was just her natural response. Well, we're colorblind. Yeah. And um, so that's something that a lot of, a lot of folks maybe listening have not even begun to approach. Do you want to speak any more about what I was yeah. unpacking there? Yeah. I, I, well, I like the way Quan and Thompson, they do try to historicize mm-hmm. race. Mm-hmm. They're careful to say this is, this is um, contingent. Um, mm-hmm. how, can, how can I put this in? Uh, I, I shouldn't use random historian type words like contingent, <laughs> but that this is something that humans created. Yes. And, um, but precisely for that reason, we have some responsibility to try to undo it. Mm -hmm. Um, But getting more sort of on the ground level, you know, when I, I I feel like I've made so many mistakes in Mm -hmm. talking to white people about race, about Mm -hmm. colorblindness. Okay. Because when I read books like, uh, Bonilla Silva, Silva, the the myth of um, uh, not the myth, that's me. Um, the the uh, colorblind racism um, and uh, things of that nature. I got so excited and realized how problematic colorblindness was, mm-hmm. and I just wanted to. If I heard someone expressing colorblind yeah. language, yeah. I like zap, gotcha, <laughs> you, you know. And um, yeah, one of the things that. I think I want to be more attuned to is, is just context, yeah. context, context. Where when we're talking about race, it's it's this human invention. If it it doesn't mean anything apart from context. Yeah. And and so what why is why is that person speaking in colorblind terms? Mm-hmm. Are they in that self-protective mode? Are they in that reactionary mode? Maybe they're not, mm-hmm. right? Maybe they're using the tools that they have. Yeah. And maybe they're expressing genuine goodwill and yeah. are well-intentioned. And for me to jump in and say, oh no, you know, yeah, is profoundly confusing yeah. and can and can be hurtful. Um and so I want to do better at, at honoring when someone has a genuine desire to see others as mm-hmm. beloved children mm-hmm. of God, mm-hmm. who we're, we're all ultimately connected to each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For me to come along and say, now, wait a minute, you're not being race conscious enough. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's bizarre, right? Yeah. So, so there, it calls for, well, I guess it calls for pastoral care, right? Yeah, it does exactly that. 
and 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 uh, and spiritual friendship, companionship, um, learning partners, conversation partners, and that's ultimately why I'm thankful to have you on this opening conversation because you've already demonstrated that kind of generosity and humility, and to continue this in a healthy way that I hope has ripple effects throughout our communities. Um, first of all, I doubt my church is a, a multiracial uh, fellowship, and we're going to be reading through this book this summer. There's an, one other church in town that's reading through it, but there's not many churches that would tie on to this. What I'm hoping is for small groups um, to meet together. And so what you're saying is as we talk about this through the podcast and then when we meet in person and as we think about each other, as we pray for each other, there has to be a kind of, um, this is the wonderful vocab of, of the Pauline letters, of the, the bearing burdens, the forbearance, the long-suffering of, of faith. Now, there is a time where injustice is causing so much oppression that we are called as Christians, like, like to go out in the streets and protest and to go, nope, <laughs> there's a time for that. And there's also a time with other people to exercise patience and forgiveness. And there's so much to learn on that. I want to tap into, before we finish up, just one last engagement with the text. Um, some folks just might be struggling with just the vocabulary of white supremacy itself. Yeah. Reparations is um, a lot of work. And then to realize we're banding about the vocab of white supremacy. So um, here, Duke and Quan say this, two things have become clear to us. First, to cease to use the language of white supremacy, even though it's historically accurate and broadly used in minority communities simply because it offends the sensibilities of white people. In our view, it's to perpetuate the logic of white supremacy itself. So that's the kind of um, potential gotcha moments <laughs> that I think uh, some folks have pushed back against with um, D'Angelo. Robin D'Angelo. They just, <laughs> I've, I've had close friends just struggle with it because it feels like, you know, um, you are already a white supremacist and to deny that you're a white supremacist is an act of white supremacy. So how, how do we respond to that? They do in the book, but I'm just curious yeah. what you'd say yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I get confused myself. Um, and, and again, you know, I, I think what we've already said about being attuned to the person in front of you, you know, and what, what, are, what are they, what are their motivations? Why are we having this conversation is important, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, part of what I'm interested in knowing if I'm engaging with someone is, do they, is there something about this language that's a genuine hang up mm -hmm. or are they not wanting to engage with the underlying reality to which the language refers? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And, 
And to me, that's the, there's the rub, right? Yeah. And, and if, if, it, if someone is helped by me dropping a certain word, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I, but I do think that far more often there's underlying attachments and commitments um, that we don't want to give up. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking even like returning to that opening letter, right? Jordan yeah. Anderson's Thank Enslaver. You. I was thinking about what it would mean for his Jordan Anderson's Enslaver to respond well to that letter. Yeah. <laughs> and as Quan and, and Thompson say, there's no record that he ever did respond, but like, yeah. First of all, there's the monetary response, right? Mm -hmm. Like he, he probably is very unlikely that he had mm -hmm. those many thousands of dollars. Yeah. But even if he did, in a way, maybe the harder thing would have been for him to acknowledge the underlying reality. Yeah. yeah. To say, Jordan, I robbed you. Yeah. I committed theft. Yeah. I persisted in it for decades. Yeah. I was wrong. Yeah. Please forgive me. Well, <laughs> you know, not only is, I mean, it, it's almost like, you know, I'm writing fan fiction here. It's almost impossible to imagine. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and I, I actually find that extremely sobering mm. because now I'm not saying that it never happened, but mm. I can't recall. Yeah in all my studies, ever seeing an example of an enslaver doing that. Wow. Um, not just manumitting their slaves as a paternalistic act, yeah. right? But saying, I'm freeing you and paying you because I was wrong, right. you know? Um, and, and to me, in a similar way, yeah. for us to say, I have benefited from this history. Yeah. And I am responsible to take certain actions mm. because of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it's deeply, deeply challenging. Thank you. Thank you. That's a great way to end this. And, and that's ultimately what I've been reflecting on. Why I believe there's a lot of really great books out on healing racism, fighting racism, um, but this particular vocabulary does not allow me to put th this journey on a shelf. Oh, I'm going to grow eventually with my understanding of racism. To put reparations is by the title thrusting this into my lap right now to have to contend with, all right, do I take this vocab seriously? Do I believe that after some people pushing back after 400 years or what, you know, we really are going to turn around and give black people, is that even the most dignifying, just all the, 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 the tangle of thoughts there. Yeah. But now I, I, I'm dealing with this front and center and we don't all have to come out in this book discussion with the same convictions about what that looks like. What my hope is, is to thrust this, a very um, scary vocabulary into a God conversation so that the Holy Spirit can draw us into the right actions. 
in our own respective ways. Yeah. Well, Jesse, it's awesome to sit with you and have this conversation. I'm sure this will help many people um, approach this difficult book. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Josh. Greatly appreciate it. So there you have it. It's documented. A PhD in history is saying, I don't know. This is complicated. So if you have dove into the book and into this conversation and you feel some level of confusion or downright resistance, please know you're not alone. And here at the end of this conversation, I want to offer you an opportunity to go back to that intentional prayer conversation. Our focus question is how this book and this vocabulary of reparations allow me to cultivate the like-minded consciousness of Jesus who emptied and humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. So what did you hear in this conversation that helps you surrender, that helps you die to your agenda? As we noted in the beginning, the difficulty is my need to protect my rightness. Where am I trying to defend myself? And where then instead am I learning to listen and to learn and to stretch myself so that I can put on the mind of Christ? One prayer move that I hope to return to throughout the summer is this question of spiritual growth and how this particular conversation on racism, white supremacy, reparations is advantageous for anyone who wants to grow in the life and the love of Jesus. I would not be approaching this text if it were not for my six years serving as a volunteer, facilitating group spiritual direction practice at the E.C. Brooks Correctional Facility in Muskegon, we know that there is no way to force, fake, or strive into God's presence. We cannot earn holiness by our own efforts. However, we can place ourselves in particular spaces in certain contexts where God is more able to get our attention. You can turn back to the Invitation Podcast, episode number 16, that's conversation number six with Chris Hall, who is currently the president of Renovare, where he and I talk about the desert as a space 
where we can place ourselves in which the Spirit is more capable of getting our attention. One of the core ideas that is essential to the spirituality of the invitation is this idea that prayer is not so much about my ability to get God's attention as much as it is about God's ability to get my attention. The desert, then, is the space where everything else can become quieter and less powerful and controlling. It's a space where God is more likely to get my attention. My time at E.C. Brooks praying with the men at that prison has been a kind of desert, and I want to suggest that joining into the questions and the conversation about racial injustice is yet another tier, another arena where we make ourselves more available to the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's an idea I want to continue to unpack in and throughout each of our episodes, conversations. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you. If you have questions or thoughts about any of this, please don't be shy. You can reach me at josh at theinvitationcenter.org. Again, we are encouraging folks to create small groups to join in this journey. That could just be two or four other people. And I want to suggest that it is better to try at least two or three gatherings. Often when we attempt a book group, we try to commit to too much. So my suggestion is to commit to what you are capable of and nothing more. I hope to have a PDF with some suggested ways for you to use your time as you gather with others. You can find that under the Justice tab at theinvitationcenter.org. If you are someone who is especially gripped by this conversation, this movement between the inner life and contemplation, and then the outer practiced life of justice, and you'd like to continue this in a community, I invite you to consider our School of Prayer. That's an eight-month journey in community through the rule of life in a way that spans this integration of contemplation and justice. This next fall... 2021, we are also launching our own two-year certification in spiritual direction. It's another formation school we're calling the School of Contemplative Listening. That is a study and practice of spiritual direction at the vital intersection between contemplation and justice as well. During this journey on reparations, it's not appropriate for me to be soliciting donations for the invitation alone. If you do feel stirred to support the ministry that's happening here, I invite you to consider 
earmarking any donation specifically towards my collaborative work with the Reverend Dr. Denise Kingdom Greer, who appeared in the last episode. My interest would be to use any available resources to amplify her voice. Specifically, I'm interested in putting together a teaching series that she would offer through her website, 1 Corinthians 13 Project. That's First Core C-O-R Project.com. If you've not already visited that website, I invite you to check that out. Pastor Denise's prophetic voice and her presence throughout the last four years, and especially during quarantine, has kept me and my wife at a relative level of sanity. She has so many gifts to offer. If she were a recording artist, what I'm hoping to offer is the A&R, the production team, the marketing and distribution for her. So as we pursue the discernment of what we can do in response to the vocab of reparations, I want to offer this challenge, especially to those who have held this vocab of white supremacy and the need for change for longer than I have. I want to challenge you to use this book study this podcast forum as an opportunity to invite people into a dialogue. Are there people in your family, at work, people who you know through church or through schools? Is there someone in your arena that you wish you could just have a sincere conversation with about the topic of racism today? I invite you to use this occasion this summer as a way to invite them to read the book too, to listen to some of the podcasts, and then to sit down for a few frank, prayerful, God-opening conversations. We're not looking for massive movements here. What we're looking for is a few willing and ready hearts and the ripple effects that might happen in the years to come through the seeds that are planted this summer through this book study. So again, I want to thank you for joining on this journey this far. I want to thank you for your courage and your faithfulness to look at the hard things. As we look into the darkness, we see with eyes that are trained on the hope of the gospel. This is where our faith becomes alive, when we see these very painful, difficult things with eyes and with a heart that believes that Jesus is truly, intimately involved in this and that there is goodness and hope for us all. So again, thanks for listening. Until next time. Amen. Amen.